Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who first called Jesus Lord. It was when she herself carried her only begotten in her womb, and Mary carried her only begotten in hers. Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth was old, like Sarah, the mother of Isaac. Her womb was as good as dead. But by God's grace, she was expecting a son who would become the forerunner of Christ. Mary was young. She never knew a man. But for the world's salvation, she was expecting none other than Christ the Lord, the long-promised seed of the woman. With this meeting of two only begottens, John and Jesus, still in their mother's wombs, we have a certain foreshadowing of the meeting of two only begottens in our gospel this morning. For this is what St. Luke calls the only son of the widow, her only begotten son. His choice of words to describe him almost begs for some point to be made. And so I make that point. This young, only begotten son was dead, and following him to the grave was a very large crowd of mourners, wailing and grieving with no power to undo death. Just as the approach of Jesus once caused John to leap in his mother's womb so that Elizabeth was able and compelled to call him Lord. So also the approach of Jesus in our text today caused and compelled St. Luke himself also for the first time as narrator to identify Jesus as Lord. And this is not because he caused a baby to leap, but because he caused the dead to rise up again. Up until this point in St. Luke's Gospel, Jesus had cleansed lepers, made the lame to walk, cast out demons, and healed every sort of disease. His fame had spread, and following him was also a very large crowd praising God for the power he had over all manner of illnesses. But through all of this, while others called Jesus Lord, St. Luke does not. He just calls him Jesus. It was not until the per he performed the final sign and proof of his messiahship by raising the dead that St. Luke, as he narrates these events, instead of just calling him Jesus, says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. This indicates something subtle, but something very powerful. It is like we heard in our Old Testament lesson last week, the widow of Zarephath received all these things that she worried about, added unto her. And yet when her son dies, her sin is brought to her remembrance. She cries out for mercy. And only then when Elijah raises her son from the dead, does she say, now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. 
What, Jesus, what makes Jesus Lord is not the power he has over mere disruptions to our earthly lives. What makes Jesus Lord is the power he has over the end of life, over the cause of death, and over final judgment. For these we must always have in mind. Jesus is the Lord of life. Luke does not call him Lord at all until he pulls, to reverse the saying, the last nail from the coffin and raises the dead. This is the Lord we were promised, not one to stall death, ease death, or help us ignore death. No, but one who is able to conquer death and rescue us from its power forever. The resurrection of the widow's son in Nain shows the Lord's undoing of death. And this is why we call him Lord. Death is the wages of sin. Jesus himself paid these wages in his own body and soul on the cross, even though he was without sin. He did this in order to make himself a holy substitute for all sinners, to forgive the debts of all humanity, and to reconcile all people to his Father. Jesus faces death not for his own sake, but for our sake, to take our place and make peace. If there is something to be made of this only begotten of the Father and the only begotten of this widow meeting under such stark conditions, it is this, that Jesus comes to take our place as our substitute to defeat death by bearing the cause of it. He who is life meets death and rescues the dead from it. Jesus teaches us the, power, the value and power of his own death by raising this boy from his death. He had compassion on his mother. His compassion is seen not only in the fact that he rescued her son from death and returned him to her, but also in the lesson he taught her and that he teaches all of us with this compassionate miracle. That is how she, her son, and all of us and our children might always take great comfort from the power he exercises over our last and greatest enemy. This lesson has three parts. First, the boys rising to life in the funeral. Beer, the cot that they were carrying him on, foreshows the bodily resurrection of the dead for all people on the last day, when his voice is heard. And this is the goal and ultimate guarantee that the Lord's own resurrection has brought about. Human beings were not made to die. They were made to live with God. The undoing of death that Christ accomplished finds its completion on the last day. All flesh will be raised. This will be a glorious and happy day for those who are Christ's. It is a dreadful day of judgment for those who do not repent and believe in Christ. To look forward to this day is to look forward to what the gospel promises. The gospel removes sin by means of the forgiveness of Christ. Even as we continue to struggle with lust and greed and grudges and pride, the gospel removes sin by working the faith that says in the face of sin and guilt, God does not condemn me. He forgives me. He rescues me from the slavery to sin that I was born into. He rescues me from his wrath against my sin. He forgives me. If the power to live after dying comes from Jesus' own command, young man, I say to you, arise. 
Well then, the power to resist the living death of temptation and guilt comes to us from hearing Jesus say, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. Even so, the gospel also removes the fear of bodily death. What else can? Even as we see our bodies fall apart and the grave yawn before us, the gospel rescues us from the fear of death by working the faith that says in the face of death, my God will not leave me here. I live even though I die. This body I weep over has the same promise that I have. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, and that is why I believe in the resurrection of the body. In light of this confidence, the boy's resurrection in our gospel lesson, second of all, foreshadows the spiritual resurrection of baptismal regeneration. If our bodily resurrection will be a day we hope for, then our spiritual resurrection must be a day we remember. This may not be a literal remembering, since we who were baptized as babies cannot recall it. But it is more important in either case to remember it spiritually. That is, to recall the benefits of being born again by water and the word. We remember our baptism. We remember that we are God's children whose sins are washed away as often as we receive through word and sacrament what our baptism first made ours. From birth, we were dead in our trespasses, but the old man has been drowned in us, and a new man has emerged and arisen. This new man is what St. Paul also calls the inner man. He is strengthened by nothing other than the gospel. We are not rooted and grounded in our love, but in his love for us. We are strengthened by the forgiveness and new life that our baptism first gave us. Our new man, our inner man, is strengthened in this way. As often as the law makes us weep in repentance, and, of course, only if we are truly grieved at the law's commands that expose our sin, well, just so often the gospel raises us up from the ashes of repentance to the eternal joys of everlasting life. By faith, we are already living eternity. While this good work of being raised to eternal life is not yet complete in us, it is nonetheless real. We have been and are being raised. Therefore, finally, the boy's resurrection in Nain illustrates for us the promise of Jesus that he is himself the resurrection and the life, that he is our Lord, and that we can call him Lord with full understanding of what it means. It means he is true God, yes, L-O-R-D in all caps, Yahweh. But it means that the one true God is the God who has compassion by sending his son to save us. And that is why we call him Lord, because of how he has saved us and from what he has saved us. Christ the Lord is Jesus our Lord. This confidence in the face of death is given to us by pure grace. This confidence is a gift that we cannot earn or man manufacture because this confidence is more than a passing emotion or perspective that we muster up. It is certainty. It is truth. It is God himself filling us with certainty. And it is this faith and certainty toward God by which 
we also rise. This confidence can only come from God. So also this life of continual resurrection to life, of resisting sin, overcoming temptation, and believing even when we are defiled by our own lust and greed and whatever it is, that we can approach God with confidence that he will receive us again. This can only come from God. This life is a gift from the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, so-called because he proceeds from Christ, who is our Lord. He gives us our victory through the words of our Lord Jesus, who won the victory. He who conquered both sin and its penalty has the authority and power to rescue us from both. It was by joining our human flesh and blood that God won salvation. Our salvation, to be sure, is spiritual. But just as our spiritual corruption is manifested by physical death, so our salvation had to be gained in the body of Christ. To spiritualize things is not to abstract them. It is to make it more concrete, not less. For it is with our bodies that we sin, is it not? So in order for our souls to be redeemed from eternal spiritual death, our bodies must be too. And that is why we weep when our loved ones die. Even when we know they believe the gospel and live in heaven, even though we know they will rise again, yet we recognize that death is bad and that the person we loved was never just a spirit encased in a disposable husk. No, our loved ones were made to hold and embrace and eat with and look at. Just as Jesus has compassion on us in our earthly misery, and addresses earthly loss in order to teach a very important spiritual lesson, so also we recognize the evil of physical death and look to be taught a very down-to-earth physical lesson. And so we treat the body with dignity. God assumed human flesh not just to save our souls, but to save us as he made us. He made us body and soul. He suffered body and soul. He earned our soul's salvation by suffering torture in his body and shedding his blood. And he earned our body's salvation by knowing our sin and guilt in the depths of his intangible human soul. The body and the soul can be distinguished in some sense, but they cannot be separated. But they are. And this is what makes death so ghastly and gruesome and evil. It is the separation of the body and soul. It is monstrous and unnatural. And so as we believe that the Christian soul is carried by angels to heaven, we likewise treat the body as something worth honoring. We honor the body first by mourning. And Jesus only says not to cry when he is prepared to wipe away tears. The events in our gospel lesson foreshadow when he will wipe away all tears forever in the resurrection. But until the body is raised, it is right to mourn. It is right to acknowledge something wrong about the fact that the body and the soul are separated. In Revelation 6, even the martyrs cry out, How long, O Lord? Not because they are in pain. They are at peace. But even in heaven, there will be a longing for the body and soul to be rejoined. In the meantime, we mock death. Not because it does not rob us, but precisely because it looks like it does. Where is your sting, we say. And yet, 
Such boasting before that which clearly defeats us only has force when it really does look like death has won, but it has only won the battle. By faith we cling on to the victory we have in the war. That war is finished, and we look forward to our finishing it too. Christians have traditionally buried their dead in cemeteries. And that word literally means a house of sleep. And we do this with the expectation of seeing them again. That is acknowledging that they are not dead and decaying for, to be forgotten for eternity, but they are only sleeping because that's what Jesus has turned our death into. And so what a wonderful thing that we know, what a beautiful truth we are given to believe and confess with which to comfort one another. We pray, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And he does. He opens our lips by drying our tears. He does not tell us to find strength in the emotional well of our being. He doesn't tell us to remember better times and the melodies that made them special. That's not how he ends our weeping, no. But he reveals power in his word, and so we sing his word. Like with the woman in Nain, Jesus tells us to stop weeping only when and because he comes with power to end the source of our sorrow. He gives life, and so we sing of life. That's why he opens our lips. We sing those hymns that teach us to have confidence toward God, that teach us to defy death by confessing him who took our sin away, by dying and rising for us. We sing from our souls that which also pertains to our bodies. We do not baptize souls, but bodies. And we do not give the Lord's Supper to souls, but we put them in bodily mouths. And by all the means by which Jesus reminds us and assures us that we are saved from sin, he also reminds us and assures us that our bodies shall be raised, that our bodies are precious to him. Those vessels in which we have mocked him, doubted him, and sought after carnal pleasures are the very vessels that he has sanctified to be his own and promises to give everlasting life to. By his baptism, John would bury sinners in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. By the same baptism, Jesus would raise them up again and give life to those who live by faith. When Jesus drawing near first caused John to leap for joy, it was as though Jesus were promising great power to John's ministry. You bury them, John, and I will raise them. You direct them to their sin and death, and then you direct them to me, who has come to take their sin and death. You bury them in baptism, and I will raise them in baptism. That which caused John to leap for joy as an infant in his mother's womb also causes us to leap for joy in the resurrection from our tomb. Jesus stepped into that funeral in Nain and interrupted it. He raised the boy back to life and gave him to his mother. He gave her what she wanted, what she was crying over, 
And the Lord has a special heart in this place for such people, for widows, for fatherless, for those who don't belong to the world, that is, to all of us who suffer anguish and affliction, who are tempted by things that are foreign to our souls, but that our bodies and minds and hearts are so tugged towards. But he says to us who are tempted, to us who mourn, come to me, all you who weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. And as surely as he gives rest to our bodies until they awake at last, he gives rest to our souls, even now as we learn to mourn as those who have hope. And herein our hope is found, in the compassion of Christ. Only his compassion has power, for it was not when he raised the dead that Luke called him Lord. It was when he saw the misery that death had brought on a weeping woman. It was when he looked on her with compassion that Luke was compelled, finally, to identify this Jesus as Christ the Lord. His compassion has power. And so you call him Lord long before your body rises. You call him Lord as often as you see him have compassion on you. His power gives us power. With the command not to weep, he shows power to make us happy again because he shows power not only to raise us from our sin, but to raise us from our graves. When the boy was raised, he talked. We have been raised, and so we talk. We have been raised spiritually, and so we talk of our faith. We learn to articulate the gospel, confess it, defend it, sing it, love it, for out of the mouth comes forth the abundance of the heart. And the power that we have to rise on the last day is the same power that lives in us now. It is the love of God. And so we sing of it. As we hear from Deuteronomy 6, we're to speak God's word when we sit down and rise, when we eat and walk on the way. We talk of God's word with our children. And herein, not only our children are thereby blessed, but also the inner man is strengthened to fight against all the forces of the devil who would make us sad by doubting our Savior's wonderful promises. He who is faithful and kind will most certainly raise us up on the last day. For he is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in him shall never die. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.